1: everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton for New Books and Biblical Studies, where I focus on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies, which is the orbit of my own PhD. On this episode, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Matthew Teeson, who has recently published a heralded introduction to Paul that uh, tries to situate him within first century Judaism. We'll dive into all of that in short order, but first, let me introduce uh, my guest, Matthew Teeson received his Ph.D. from Duke University in 2010 and is an associate professor of religious studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Uh, he is the author of numerous books, including Paul and the Gentile Problem uh, from uh, Oxford Press in 2016, Jesus and the Forces of Death from Baker in 2020, and Contesting Conversion, Genealogy, Circumcision and Identity in Ancient Judaism and Christianity from Oxford Press in 2011, and that was awarded the Manfred Lautenschläger Award for Theological Promise. On top of all that, Matthew is joining us today uh, from his home to discuss uh, the publication of his newest book, which is called A Jewish Paul, and the subtitle is The Messiah's Herald to the Gentiles, and it was published by Baker Academic this year in 2023. Matt, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Ron.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, so I've I'm been familiar with your name before, but I hadn't read any of your work. So this was an interesting uh, introduction to it all. So it's very concise. It's a. Uh, 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 very usable in the classroom, I would say, and I think that might be what you're shooting for. But we'll uh, we'll see here in a bit, uh, especially for seminary students who might need kind of a shakeup with the way that they are introduced to uh, Paul, uh, the, the one that uh, that they may not have been comfortable with. But you write in your comments, your prefatory comments in the book, that um, this almost came accidentally to you, or you came accidentally to it as a result of the COVID pandemic. Um, given that there's no real shortage of literature out there about Paul, I'm curious uh, if you could talk about what uh, you set out to accomplish with this particular book, who your um, um, target audience was and so on.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. As you mentioned this, this really started as, as the pandemic was descending on us and up here in Canada, we went into, you know, some pretty, pretty strong lockdowns. And so I didn't have access to, um, a lot of books for for new research, and so um, I realized I needed to figure something else out. And I had a couple of editors um, suggest that I take uh, my my earlier book on Paul from 2016, and uh, you know take parts of it and and turn it into something that's um, a little more accessible to a broader audience, not just scholars. And so. Uh, I thought, you know this might be the time to to do something like that and it felt like it was important to take um, this newer trend in Pauline studies, often referred to as the Paul within Judaism school and and to offer it up for a broader audience um, not just for Christians, but you know I think my book uh, does try to to target Christians a little bit a little bit more um, to give them sort of a sense of what this book is about or what this movement's about and why it might be important. Uh, for them to to take notice.
1: Very good. Um, so is this book basically a reflection of how you teach Paul to students? Is it sort of a distillation of your previous books on Paul? Or did you have to perform any extensive new research about Paul? And kind of as an addendum to that, how did you get into studying Paul uh, as you do?
0: Yeah, so the answer is yes. Uh, it's sort of all of those things. Um, you know, there there are some parts of my Paul, uh, Paul and the Gentile problem that show up here in, in modified form, there are parts of lectures I've given on Paul to my undergrads that show up. And then, you know, a bit of new stuff that was in my mind, but had never really been put down on paper um, to sort of fill it out. And so it's, it's a, a mix of all of it, but sort of, you know, a really concise, but I hope relatively coherent uh, account, one account of how to read Paul. Um, you asked... Oh, your next question was—it
1: uh, was how you um, came to specialize in Paul. Uh, what about Paul stood out for you as you were, you know, in, in your doctoral studies, and uh, why did why did you center uh, on on this uh, this subject?
0: You know, Rob, that's a great question. Uh, I never intended to be a Paul scholar. Well, I shouldn't say I never intended to be a Paul scholar. I didn't do any Paul stuff in my PhD program. Um, there was a point where I thought maybe I would hit Paul in my dissertation, and I decided not to. And I think that was wise. I'd probably still be writing my dissertation, Um, but I realized, you know, my dissertation, which was really focused on circumcision, it needed to talk about, and and it it was one of my goals to talk about Paul at some point, but maybe not quite as um, fully as I ended up doing. So I never wanted—I never really wanted to be a Paul scholar, Um, and yet here I am, I guess, being a bit of a Paul scholar. Uh, So you know, I think. Paul is is really fascinating he has always fascinated me and troubled me and confused me and so that's probably why I've written so much about Paul but I think much of my training was me sort of realizing I have these sort of entrenched views that have been given to me about Paul the way to get through them or or past them is maybe not so much to study Paul as it is to study other things that might shed new light on Paul and so uh, I think that's you know that's a sort of concise take on why i'm why I am where I'm at right now.
1: I can identify with that. I've gone through cycles of kind of aversion to Paul, interest, disinterest, uh, maybe not quite repulsion with with Paul, but uh, I think you know how it goes ever so slightly. Um, and this probably stems from my own background as well of of having Paul you know, hammered into me in Sunday school and uh, growing up in, in the church and so on. Um, and therefore, I do recognize your attempt here to make Paul weird as you put it uh, i think that comes from making austin weird i, I don't know what what the whole etiology of, of of that phrase is but uh, you, you write in one of your early chapters that you're making paul weird and uh, part of this at the outset is to kind of reject the use of typical christianese uh, or mostly words that have been transliterated for us all the way from greek into english without being translated exactly even though we sometimes retain parts of the meaning words like apostle or christ Uh, And so you end up with the word herald in your book subtitle, which surprised me a little bit because that has its own resonance from the pastoral epistles, if uh, if, if people are familiar with those texts. Um, But I sense that you are attempting to defamiliarize Paul uh, to your readers by sort of on the one hand translating this christianese into you know good english and on the other hand contextualizing paul in his first century environment so can you talk about what principles sort of undergird your use of language like ambassador or envoy or herald for paul while at the same time you shy away from these churchy words
0: yep yeah. yeah it really is an attempt to to use i mean use better words but use words that are less familiar to sort of make a stop and think oh wait a minute Uh, Because I think, you know, when we hear the word apostle, it's so familiar to those, especially with with any sort of church or Christian background, that it doesn't mean anything. And, and, you know, when I think about I grew up on this term, (laughs) I I don't remember a time when I didn't know what it meant um, or didn't think I know what it meant. But then when I think about, you know, who told me what it meant and it's I can have sort of vague memories of pastors saying, you know, it has to do with sending and That's that's really generic. It's not incorrect, um, but it's also I I don't know that it tells us enough. And so, I wanted to pick something that really highlighted Paul's belief that he was the divinely appointed messenger on behalf of uh, Israel's Messiah. And so that this is this is a diplomatic role on some level, and a, a diplomatic role to a particular people group. And so ambassador is actually a, you know, I, I, really, I didn't love any of the words ambassador, envoy, herald. I don't think any of them's perfect. I couldn't figure out which was best. Um, cause they're also like words we don't use that often in English today. Um, but there's something distinctively, uh, like the role is very formal. I think that's important to get across. There's something very focused about the mission. It's in particular to non-Jews. Um, And it's on behalf of a a royal uh, or political figure. So terms like ambassador or herald, I think, get to some of that in ways that apostle just is so bland. uh, um, And it doesn't. And so I think to defamiliarize is really helpful.
1: Yeah, and and two of them are quite diplomatic terms in english at least uh, ambassador envoy herald is i feel kind of gauche maybe uh, in english it's a it's a strange word you don't hear you know, someone calling themselves a herald too often but uh, uh, it, it's a word that arrests you in the subtitle makes you think and then you you explain it well in one of your early chapters why you are using this term rather than you know other terms so it's very very good you also talk a bit uh, in sort of the introductory chapters about the popular perspectives on Paul and I use this word sort of intentionally uh given that the new perspective on Paul uh, as you have memed about on social media isn't quite new <laughs> uh, it's from return of the jedi which turns 40 years old this year <laughs> uh, or around that time rather um uh, and there are other popular perspectives and a recent book I tried to uh, put them in conversation with uh, with one another in interesting ways but um uh, all that said uh Different interpreters of Paul sort of self-select into different camps based on the lenses that they bring to uh, the task of interpretation Um, and his theology, his mission, uh, for lack of a better term there. Your status as a Pauline scholar, um, I wonder if you might give us a brief state of the field analysis. How do you see the field today? Where do you think it's going? Uh, What are the major perspectives? What's trending? And why do you self-locate into this Paul within uh, Judaism perspective?
0: Yeah. Um, and there's lots I could say here, you know, I, I, any, and again, any, especially any Protestants or evangelicals, um, listening have probably grown up without realizing it on sort of a, a very, um, particular reading of Paul that often gets called the Lutheran reading. Um, and that's, uh, you know, very, very common, so common that people don't even realize there are other possibilities out there, unless they've done some New Testament studies, um, and that's the view that that Paul and ancient Jews all thought they had to work really hard to earn their salvation with God possibly even having to be perfect um to earn God's favor and so it's really this contest between um trying to work to earn your salvation and then Paul coming to realize wait a minute uh salvation is a free gift from God and all it takes is faith to to um to have this salvation and uh in 1977 Uh, Ed Sanders really dismantled this view of Judaism in particular, uh, that it's a a religion of works righteousness. And he showed over and over again how ancient Jewish texts uh, assume that God is gracious and charitable and generous uh, and that salvation is an act of God and that Israel's fidelity or or, um, Israel's obedience is, is all just faithfulness to what God has already done to them. So it's a response. And so out of that book came what what scholars have called, uh, since 1983, I believe, they've called the new perspective on Paul. Um, So uh, you you mentioned Return of the Jedi, which I think is 77, isn't it? Um,
1: Return of the Jedi is 83. It's it's actually the 40th anniversary of it this year. So it's as old as as, uh, the Emperor. (laughs) I am not
0: a massive Star Wars fan. I always use the analogy of Commodore 64, which is something I did have, um, which came out in 1983. And For was a younger technology. listeners, that's a
1: very, very old video game system. That's right.
0: Yeah. Um, and so this new perspective came out and said, well, look, if, Ed's right, if Ed Sanders is right about Judaism, then what is Paul's problem with Judaism? So if it's not, you have to earn your salvation. It's something else. And so uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, and James Dunn in particular, but others as well, uh, put forward this new perspective on Paul that his problem with Judaism wasn't works righteousness. It was that Judaism was ethnocentric. And so Tom Wright very pithily and problematically talks about Paul um, preaching grace, not race. And so the sort of underlying assumption there is that's what Judaism preached, race, not grace. And so um, you have these two competing systems and they've produced a lot of sort of fireworks, especially in... in um, I think especially in more conservative, uh, Protestant or evangelical circles. Um, but there've been new things that have happened since 1983, uh, <laughs> new, new operating systems have dropped. Um, and you know, I think there are a couple, one is the apocalyptic school of Paul, which actually already existed beforehand, um, but didn't distinguish itself. I don't think, um, maybe loudly from older perspectives. And so this apocalyptic school is that there's just this radical new inbreaking um, in, in Christ, in Paul's thinking. And so it tries to sort of steer away from the Lutheran and new perspectives, but I think it probably still is indebted to them in different ways. And then the, the, you know, the school that, uh, I guess I'm part of, which I didn't realize I was a part of, um, until, you know, um, well, until I was well into it. Is this Paul within Judaism school? And in, in the there are a few, few assumptions in this school, but I think the key assumption is that unlike the sort of Lutheran perspective or new perspective, the Paul within Judaism perspective doesn't see a radical break between Paul and Judaism. Paul's not rejecting, abandoning Judaism. And he uh is uh he doesn't have a particular problem with Judaism. Like here is what's wrong with it. Paul just thinks that Israel's Messiah has come. And this is the culmination now of both human history and Israel's history. And so he doesn't see a radical break or a sort of like problematic, um, undergirding assumption, like the Lutheran and new perspective, uh, views hold about Judaism. I could say a lot more uh, about that, but maybe I'll stop there.
1: Uh, And, um, especially the Lutheran perspective or the traditional Protestant perspective, um, you know, kind of takes its start from Christianity superseding Judaism. And I think uh, Paul within Judaism tries to push back significantly against that. You know, um, as uh, Pam Eisenbaum uh, titled her book, Paul Was Not a Christian and and tries to frame him within Judaism. And I think you were participating in sort of that same uh, current perhaps. Um, And and one thing that I appreciated about uh, the work that you did in this book is that you weren't sort of constantly trying and defend yourself against other perspectives rather you're putting a, a best foot forward for a Paul within Judaism Jude, Judaism perspective excuse me um, uh, and so uh, there's this tendency to want to um, you know go to bat against an NT right for example um, uh, who who's allowed to set the terms of the debate and, and you don't you kind of don't allow him to do that while also saying where you kind of have common ground with these folks and where you disagree with them. So uh, it's, a, it's a very nice introduction on, on those fronts and a much different book than the one where um, uh, that I described earlier, where all the um, different perspectives are kind of in conversation and conversation with one another. Anyway, uh, let's get into the details about uh, Paul, the diasporic Jew or the Jewish Paul from, from your title here. You frame sort of Judaism as a spectrum of ideas or positions or you know different opinions, I guess, that could be held by different people who identified as Jews or Judeans, whether they lived in the rough boundaries of Roman Palestine or uh, were diasporic like Paul probably was. And uh, from there, you show that Paul is, you know, pretty comfortably within the, the spectrum of Judaism, even if his letters are canonized as Christian in the, in you know, our New Testament. Uh, yet many Christians and scholars typically believe Paul, uh, uh, they characterize Paul or think of him as a convert. And that's sort of like the, the number one framework that they bring to the table. Uh, and whether this be from one religion to another or to belief in Jesus as a Messiah in a fashion that sort of distinguishes him sharply from his former life in Judaism as Galatians 1.13 could be translated. Uh, can you get into how you handle this sort of enigma of contextualizing Paul as still a first century Jew for an audience that imagines him as the paradigmatic convert to, uh, to Christianity?
0: Yeah. So it's <laughs> a great question. Um, I think the issue is when we hear the language of conversion, we almost always, in our own modern context, think someone's converting, well, either from nothing, atheism, agnosticism, or something, or from a, a remarkably different religion than Christianity to Christianity, or to another religion. Um, but usually we think Christianity, I think. And so if we apply that sort of paradigm back onto Paul and think of him as a convert, it's it's not merely that he's converting to Christianity, he's converting from something, and that would be Judaism. and. That is such an anachronistic um, set of assumptions that I think it's really unhelpful for reading Paul. Paul never uses the word Christian or Christianity or anything like that. And I don't think, I mean, either he didn't know the terms um, and didn't think of himself as leaving something for something new that was remarkably different, um, or he didn't even like the term if he knew it. And I think that's an interesting possibility as well. Um you know, I've, I have heard Christians use the language of conversion, only, only once or twice have I heard the, the language of uh, Christians using the language of conversion within Christianity. Um, I guess I hear it in terms of like from Catholicism to Protestantism usually. But I've heard, you know, I've heard one or two people say something like, yeah, I converted to Methodism and they converted from uh, like a non-denominational church I mean, I can think of one particular instance and I remember how jarring it was to my ears because I don't think anybody has ever used the language of, of of conversion or rarely uses that language to convert from sort of one form of Protestantism to another form. And so I think that's what's pr- problematic about Paul. Paul is talking about, yeah, former way former way of living within uh, Jewish customs and practices. And he's now taken up a new form of it but I don't think he would think of this as a remarkably different thing. And so a lot of scholars would prefer to talk about Paul's call. This is where Paul realizes he's called by Israel's God on behalf of Israel's Messiah to go talk to a bunch of Gentiles about this Messiah. But it's not like he thinks, Oh, I was a Jew. And now I'm not a Jew or I'm such a radically, radically different Jew. Um, I don't think he sees it quite in those ways, but he definitely has a radical new sort of reason for, um, living or mode of mode of living,
1: the the idea of conversion, I don't really think it's very natural to Paul himself, but is kind of the framework that's imposed on us from Acts uh, and you know the Damascus road Experience. Uh, um, you can comment that on, on that if if you will, but uh, that's where I usually think of it as coming from. As people seeing, you know, Paul having this really dramatic experience, and that you know uh, flips the switch for him. Once he you know has the scales lifted from his eyes, he's, he can see again, and suddenly he uh, he is no longer the person that he was, and now he is a quote unquote Christian.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's obviously a change. He's changed his mind. He doesn't he doesn't think Jesus is the Messiah. He thinks this group of messianic, uh, well, Jewish messianists are wrong. And all of a sudden he thinks they're right. Um, How sudden, of course, is its own debate. How do we know how sudden that was? Um, And always conversion narratives always become much more sudden after the fact, I think, than sort of through the process. Um, But yeah, I I don't think Paul would understand what he was was doing as a conversion or what happened to him as a conversion. Um,
1: he, he only calls it a revelation in him, uh, in in Galatians 1. Um, uh, so let's talk a little bit about the, you mentioned the apocalyptic school that's been around for a while, and you dedicate a chapter as well to Paul's eschatology. You call him an end-time Jew. And I sense for you that this is sort of foundational, not only to your framing of Paul within an apocalyptic mainstream in first century Judaism, uh, but also, uh, you know, in your understanding that Paul Uh, Paul's conviction that Jesus as the heavenly Messiah was soon to intervene in the world for the salvation of those who believed in him. Um, You can comment on any of this if you'd like and sort of frame it differently if you you want to. But uh, my question relates almost more to Pauline scholarship broadly and the tendency for um, some, many. uh, You know, I I don't completely have the lay of the land, but it feels like there are many that... uh, um, choose not to see apocalyptic eschatology as a significant motivation for Paul. Um, if that's true, what lies behind this non-apocalyptic Paul for many? And can you sort of understand where these scholars are coming from? Do they not want the heroic apostle of Christianity to have been wrong on this matter? I, I hear that a lot from people who reject apocalypticism in Jesus, especially. But uh, And is, is it possible to dialogue with people who don't think that Paul was an apocalyptic thinker?
0: Wow. <laughs> Yeah, well, and even in even the people, even the apocalyptic school of Paul, I think, has a form of apocalypticism which is questionably, uh, well, it's questionable whether it actually existed in Paul's day. Um, and and you know, Tom Wright, for instance, again will talk about Paul's apocalypticism, but it seems like it's a very uh ironically, sort of a demythologized um apocalypticism. Uh and so I do think there's there's some anxiety or embarrassment around the possibility that Paul might have been wrong. Um, You know, and and I I look at the evidence in 1 Thessalonians and in 1 Corinthians, where Paul seems to think that some of the people he's writing to are going to be alive when Jesus returns. Uh, And so not everybody who he's writing to is going to die. That means within a few, you know, few decades at most. And if that's what Paul thought, he obviously was incorrect about the timing. Um, and so I think some people think, well, if he was incorrect about the timing, is there anything useful in Paul? Um, if we can't trust him on that, can we trust him on anything else? And so I think there's some anxiety there. And I think there's also just anxiety around, um, thinking about Paul in some of the same ways that thinking in some of the same ways that modern apocalyptic Christians think, um, you know, when there are billboards out around Jesus is going to return, on this date, and then it inevitably doesn't happen. Well, you know, we look these at that. Days, and...
1: These days those billboards only say Jesus is coming soon. Okay. <laughs> uh, they, they, <laughs> they refuse to put a date on it. But you know, I drive past That's them right. in Kansas all yeah. the time. So
0: okay. Um, yeah, there was one in, I think it was 2011, Harold Camping had them up when I was living living on the prairies of Canada and, and I was seeing these everywhere. It's embarrassing. And it's like it's so tacky, right? It's just so tacky and seems like so uneducated and just stupid and no one wants to think of Paul that way um and so I think there's some anxiety there about about um protecting Paul from that kind of thinking but I just think that's what Paul thought um the messiah has come he's been raised from the dead we're not going to be waiting 2000 years here folks it doesn't it wouldn't make wouldn't make much sense i don't think to his mind and we've had to readers of paul and christians have had to sort of rationalize and theologize their way through this delayed return? How can it still be true that it's going to happen, even though it hasn't happened when we thought it was going to happen? And so, you know, you get claims like a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are beautiful theological platitudes that are used to sort of, I think, um, cover over the anxieties that early Christians had around, uh, wow, we thought Jesus was coming back right away, and here we are still kicking, and with no end in sight. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: <clears throat> are there other ways? Uh, this uh, thought came to me as you were speaking. Are there other ways that uh, people like N.T. Wright or people who view of the apocalypticism as more benign um, soften it? Uh, you mean you mentioned kind of that uh, typical um, uh, way of changing days into years <laughs> in the thousand years. But uh, are there other ways that they uh, that they soften it? Uh, and it, it, what also came to my mind is that it's, you know, the, this apocalypticism is not only present in Paul's first letter, which can sometimes be kind of shoved aside as well. That's just Paul at his most infantile thinking. Instead, let's look to let's look to his, you know, more uh, his richer letters like Romans. But, you know, the breadcrumbs of apocalypticism are present there as well. Um, so uh, how, how, do, how do we how do scholars typically skirt around? you know, the, the notice in Romans that we're closer today to our salvation than we were when we first became believers and so on and so forth. Uh,
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a great statement, right? We're closer now than we were is so like non-false falsifiable um, and so sort of obvious, but I I think it is an attempt to like, I mean, I I think this was happening. If, if you believe Jesus was raised from the dead, any, every moment after that, Seems like a well. Wait a minute. What? Why didn't the rest of the story unfold? If Jesus has defeated death, why are we still living in this this world with its so many sorrows and and, and woes? Um, and so I think it was always there from the beginning. I think Christians have done a number of things, including yeah, those sort of thousand days or thousand uh, uh, days like a thousand years. Um, but it's also sort of identifying the kingdom of God with something interior to the human being. Or the church is the kingdom of God. And these are attempts to sort of um, say something transformative and huge happened, even though you can look out your window or you can go on to social media and just see how much of a mess the world is. Something really big did actually happen 2000 years ago and is happening. And so I think those are the efforts to try to find ways to still hold to some some form of apocalypticism it's an attempt to but then it's an interiorization or spiritualization of it or trying to turn it into like you know an ecclesiastical structure of the church um knowing full well that what's going on elsewhere just doesn't look like um the kingdom of god
1: Accepting this um, apocalyptic view, or this intensely apocalyptic view of early Christianity, is probably what has redeemed Paul and the Deuteropolitanes for me, and the Pastoral's, because it's interesting in the different ways that um, second and third century Christians dealt with the uh, you know great disappointment, if we might term it that way, of you know the end not coming right away, and so we have you know an author like Luke who. Uh, um, sort of changes the kingdom of god from this and this thing that's arriving to this uh, thing that can be participated in john does the same thing uh that's how i came to focus on Hermas, uh, um and the apostolic fathers as being part of this trend to uh rationalize what christianity is to become uh, or what this movement uh this jesus movement is to uh, uh become in the decades after uh, a great disappointment so um when i talk about the uh, Kind of, not revulsion—that's not the word I want to use—but the aversion to Paul that I once had, and the way that I uh, come to him now, and his uh, uh, his next interpreters—it's because that period is so interesting uh, to me. I don't know if you feel the same way, since you focus on you know who the actual Paul was in in his day. But uh, uh, the, that's how, that's kind of the switch that flipped for me uh, in terms of the, the Paul's later uh, interpreters. Um, uh, let's uh let's get into uh kind of Paul's separation of the work of the world because uh, one way that's sort of classically human I think is to think in you know us versus them categories American foreigner Roman barbarian Catholic Aryan, and the list could go on and on um Paul is no stranger to this division of the world uh in his uh you know framing of Jew and ethnoi or Gentile. Uh, with Gentile in this case being a catch-all category for all the other people of the world who are not Jewish, the other races. Uh, You asked this question yourself in one of your um, middle chapters, I believe, and you deal with it over the course of several of them. So I'll pose it in much the same way and allow you to to, uh, talk about it as you will. Uh, So why did Paul uh, see the need to proclaim his resurrected Messiah to Gentiles? And what does this Jewish Messiah offer to non-Jews? Um, and kind of as a follow-up, there, do you see Paul as being motivated by mainstream interpretations of Jewish prophetic texts like Isaiah and Daniel, or is his gospel to the Gentiles more of an idiosyncratic Pauline only phenomenon?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So my, my first book on Paul, Paul, Paul and the Gentile problem, um, tries to get at some of this. And I, and I talk about it in this book in a, in a, you know, an easier or a more concise way. Um, Paul, like most ancient Jews or many ancient Jews, well, first of all, everybody in the ancient world, you mentioned it's a very common human habit. It's true. Uh, we like to divide the world, us and them. Um, and, and ancient people did this all the time. And uh, ethnic othering uh, is one way we can talk about it. And usually the ethnic othering, there's a hierarchy, right? The we, the us is is superior and the them is is inferior.
1: Or we should be superior. We should be put back on our pedestal and, you know, restored to that position.
0: Yeah, right. Um, And and many ancient Jews had that perspective. And God has given us, God elected us and God gave us the law, which gives us an advantage over other people. Um, And uh, so there's where the new perspective, you know, it's trying to point to something that I think isn't entirely inaccurate. I just think it uh, ends up framing Judaism very negatively and unfortunately very negatively. Um, Paul thought and still thought, even as he's writing, uh, these letters as a believer in Jesus, that Gentiles were at a significant disadvantage and it's because they had stopped worshiping the one true God and had started worship. So you can see this in Romans 1, 18 through 32, really concisely. Um, they abandoned the one true living God and started worshiping lifeless idols and that, that that language of the living God and lifeless idols, I think, is really important because you become what you worship. You end up imitating it and mimicking it. And so you worship the true living God. This is good news. But you worship the wrong things and you're going to become like those wrong things. And of course, it, it highlights the stupidity of it all. And and the stupidity of worshiping idols is you become lifeless and you descend you become lifeless in two different ways. One is, you know, specifically mortality. You're going to die and that's bad news. And two, uh, you become lifeless in a moral sense. And so in Romans one eighteen through 32, you get Paul talking about Gentiles really sort of descending into these stereotypical vices um, that Paul discusses at some length. And so these are two of the problems that Gentiles have that Jews don't have. Yeah, Jews have committed idolatry in the past, but by and large, uh, with with all of their foibles, they've they've worshipped the one God and God has given them the law to do. And they've done it to some degree um, or other, you know, with some success. And Gentiles, on the other hand, are just over there sort of toiling in oblivion and stupidity. And so they need um, to be injected with some sort of new life. And that's what Paul thinks uh, the messiah comes to give gentiles these are these are lifeless gentiles and any attempt to sort of resuscitate them is bound to fail because they're dead except a divine injection of of the messiah's spirit which then brings them to life morally and will give them immortality and so That's what you see. You mentioned the prophetic texts like Isaiah and Daniel. For sure, Paul is dependent upon all of these things. And I used to think that he was really dependent upon um, what scholars often refer to as eschatological pilgrimage texts. That when Israel is saved, the Gentiles will stream up to Jerusalem and will begin worshipping the one true God. Um, And I don't think that's totally inaccurate, but it's not quite right, because Paul does some really weird Relatively idiosyncratic stuff. So this gets to your question about, is this something unique to Paul? Paul makes the rather audacious claims that these Gentiles become sons and seed uh, of Abraham uh, in the Messiah. And that's not something generally you see in, well, at all, really, in eschatological pilgrimage texts. They come as Gentiles. They worship as Gentiles. They're saved as Gentiles. Paul has something, they don't convert and become Jews, but they do somehow become sons and seed of Abraham. And that's, he's walking a fine line there. Um, and there are reasons he does it, and uh, which, which we, we might get into shortly. But uh, I think, so there's, he's dependent on stuff, but he's riffing in his own, his own way too.
1: So let's get into that, uh, uh weirdness of Paul here. Uh, I think it's, I think it's about time with all this, uh, setup, uh, going, going, uh, toward that. Um, so, uh, f- I think um, the, sort of toward the middle of the book Paul gets weird when you talk about how he imagines as you sort of men- mentioned here uh, the benefits of the Messiah becoming available to Gentiles it's not just um, uh, it's not just uh shock therapy like you can put an EKG on their chest and like suddenly they have the Torah within them and they they're going to follow it but instead um, he he encounters in his Galatian churches and possibly others as well an instinct for Gentile believers to Judaize to undergo circumcision to take on parts, maybe all of the Torah. Uh, but you refer to this, especially the circumcision part, as cosmetic surgery that lacked for Paul any effectiveness of uh, what you put as a pneumatic or pneumatic gene therapy. Um, and th- th- there's the weirdness. If, if, if this sounds at all to our listeners like modern lingo sprinkled into Paul, I think uh, you do it fully consciously because you make the point that Paul relies on thinking in of his uh, that are kind of current of scientific ideas in his own time uh, in the Mediterranean world of the first century CE. And so you appeal to you know science that's current for us, uh, something that we think about uh, ethically. Why for Paul is this deeper infiltration by God's spirit or Pneuma, the way he conceives of Gentiles being included among the saints and tied, as you mentioned, back to Abraham suddenly?
0: Yeah, so this, this goes back um, in part to the new perspective on Paul, that grace, not race claim. and And this is something that really hit me as I began working on Paul, at least in Romans and Galatians. Paul really seems to care quite a bit about um Abraham. For someone who doesn't care about race, Paul cares a lot about Abraham, the father or grandfather of, of Israel. And so there seems to be some ethnocentric uh thinking still persistent in Paul. And that doesn't even, I mean it's pretty clear, I think. And so um that has to be explained. So that's part of the weirdness of Paul that I think we we paper over. And What Paul, I think, believes is that God has made a series of promises to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. This is what he says in Galatians 3, that they're only for Abraham and Abraham's seed. And Paul identifies these promises um, around the constellation of ideas associated with the resurrection. And so the problem then is, what about Gentiles who have no relationship to Abraham and Abraham's seed? How do they get these promises? If Paul didn't care about ethnocentricity, um, he just would say it doesn't matter. You got it. But Paul actually cares about um, descent, genealogical descent. And so he has to come up with a way that Gentiles become related to Abraham. And Abraham, his claim is, in Galatians 3, it's a very difficult convoluted text, is that Abraham's seed is actually the Messiah. Um, which isn't to say nobody else is Abraham's sons or anything, but his, his heir is the Messiah. And so then Paul claims that when the Messiah is resurrected and his spirit goes out in, and infects or um, invades the bodies of non-Jews, there is a newly forged pneumatic connection between non-Jews and the Messiah. They're both in him and he's in them. Uh, And here they're clothed in him. And so they take on the Messiah's identity. They become sons and seed of Abraham. They become sons of God. And so they've inherited and gained Christ's identity um, through the the reception of of the Messiah's spirit or Puma. And so this is what unlocks for them all of Abraham's promises. They don't just remain with Jews. They also go to non-Jews but it's via a genealogical connection from Abraham to the Messiah into believing non-Jews.
1: And that's weird. It's totally weird. Very much so. That's um, not something that's not but, a message that you hear preached uh, from the pulpit very often. Um kind of uh, going along with all this, uh, you have one of the better ways of explaining Paul's uh, Sarah or Sarah and Hagar Uh, narrative in Galatians 4, which you say he believes is written as an allegory and not just interpreted as one uh, by him, (laughs) Uh, 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 for Gentiles to understand sort of theologically why an incorrect circumcision does not cover people with the promises of God and that there's actually risks inherent to taking on an incorrect circumcision. How does that chronology that he plays with there of the Abrahamic stories in Genesis and how he tries to explain it in a very quick manner, I would say, uh, uh, in Galatians, uh, play into his argument that uh, Gentiles become heirs to the promise via, you know, the penuma or spirit rather than circumcision.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to do this succinctly. I think it's, again, so Galatians four twenty one through 31 is, is really a difficult text. And part of what helped me was was reading an article which showed how many times the language of allegory in Paul's day Really referred to the genre of a work and not to a mode of reading. "1984" um, by George Orwell. Not sorry, not "1984." "Animal Farm" by George Orwell isn't is a political allegory. It's about pigs and other farm animals, but it's actually about, uh, well, European politics in in Orwell's day. "Pilgrim's Progress" is another uh, text written as an allegory, and Paul thinks this is what Genesis the Abraham narrative is as well. It's a story about them, but it's actually about the end of the ages as well. And Paul points out, look, you Gentiles, you want to be Abraham's sons? That's great. You're right. But you need to remember there are two sons. There are more than two sons, but there are two named sons. There's Isaac and Ishmael. You want to make sure you're not the wrong son. And that's his whole uh, discussion in Galatians 4, 21 through 31, is you go get circumcised as an, as an adult Guess who you've imitated? It's not Isaac who got circumcised as an eight-day-old. You actually imitated Ishmael. And at the end of the Ishmael, narrative, well, the the main chunk of the Ishmael narrative, you get the claim, cast out the slave woman and her son. So if you want to imitate Ishmael, that's the end result. You get cast out. Um, But if you want to get to be an inheriting son like Isaac, you have to imitate Isaac. And Isaac gets born in a very different way. Um, his circumcision is eight days old, which has nothing to do with anything you can do anyways. You just need to be a child of of the promise um, and and not the flesh is what Paul's claim is. So there are sort of two competing modes of how Gentiles might, might want to become Abraham's sons. And Paul sort of vilifies the one, or maybe doesn't vilify it, but show, you know, claims that it ends in a dead end. Um, and his mode uh, is the one that actually works, is his claim.
1: Uh, to continue, maybe the discussion of PNUMA or numa and pneumaticos in Paul, you uh, interpret these terms as being uh, somewhat different than how we think of spiritual today which is kind of a more of a mystical thing i i think for most people Uh, but you rely on this ancient scientific thought and what pneuma or pneuma might have meant to communities that paul writes in his letters it's kind of an element that's out there like an ether perhaps you you can talk about that uh, in a in better ways than i than i possibly could here but um is it fair to say that you view paul's argument in something like first corinthians 15 where he imagines believers taking on a pneumatic body when the corruptible flesh has been resurrected uh, um, uh, as them inheriting some kind of material and yet also eternal body and therefore gentile believers are also somehow materially connected to abraham not just spiritually as we as we conceive of it and that enables them to be collected up when jesus returns
0: yeah yeah that's right thanks for thanks for stressing that about abraham this genealogical connection from abraham to the messiah to gentiles it's not some sort of like metaphorical thing in Paul's mind. They really have been invaded by a, a material substance, Messiah's pneuma, um, his stuff. And it like creates this. I mean, it's I, I think I've maybe used the language of DNA or gene therapy. Um, and I think so view it very materialist, uh, in very materialistic ways. And I think we get close to what Paul's trying to do. Um you know, when we, when we think about a text like 1 Corinthians 15 and the idea of resurrection, there are sort of two major schools, um, I think, sort of in at least popular imagination. One is Paul thinks the resurrection is bodily. And what people mean when they say that, and this is really important, what people say when they mean bodily resurrection, they mean flesh and blood. So when I die, this this body, uh, this sack of bones is going to be raised from the dead. Um, maybe as a, you know, out of shape 46 year old man, um, and it'll ascend to heaven or something and then live forever, but as flesh and blood and, and, you know, it's got to be somehow supercharged so it doesn't deteriorate any further, but it's still flesh and blood. And that's what bodily resurrection means. And so if you hear anybody say, well, no, the resurrection isn't flesh and blood. The, um, the, uh, immediate assumption becomes, oh, so you don't think there's a bodily resurrection. Paul doesn't believe in a bodily resurrection. And so there's sort of these two debates. Is it a, um, bodiless, um, soul that exists after death or is it a flesh and blood body? And I think Paul thinks both are wrong. Um, his whole point is that if, you know, um, your body has to fit its habitat. Uh, my son has a little fish in an aquarium downstairs. If I took it out and put it on this table, it wouldn't live much longer. It has a fish body. It needs water. And he makes, this is actually what Paul even says, right? There are different types of flesh. And likewise, there are different types of, he has to, he can't use flesh anymore for, because for the heavenly realm, there are different types of glory for the sun, stars and moon. And his point is you have to have the right body for the right habitat. And if you think a flesh and blood body can exist in the heavenly realm, you're you're sadly wrong. Um, it will, it'll evaporate or or, or um, uh, it'll go wrong uh, is the point. Um, very quickly, it doesn't belong there. It can't exist there. And so Paul thinks the body that you get has to fit the habitat. It's going to be a body that consists of a heavenly um, substance, pruma. So it's bodily, it's material, um, but it's not flesh and blood. But all of that, um, Rob, this is going back to, I think, how you started, is dependent upon some ancient science around what pneuma is. And when we hear pneuma, we just think, you know, I, mean, I don't even know what we think, actually. Um, I've, I've been trying to figure out whatever it would be I, wonderful I used to, to think pull, about.
1: You know, get get 50 biblical scholars together and poll us and, and then do the same for, you know, lay people. And I, I think, I think the, the results will be all over the map.
0: I do too. Cause, cause you know, to say spirit, well, the, so it's not material, but if it's not material, what is it? Um, but it's, it's sort of dependent upon classical assumptions about God. God can't have a body. God can't be material because why? Because God can't change. God can't diminish. God can't die. You can't divide God up. Well, that's exactly what a lot of ancient thinkers thought about Pneuma. It's material, but it's, um, immortal, imperishable, it never weakens, it doesn't get old. And so the same sort of assumptions are there, but it's a materialistic view of, of, uh, divinity and Puma at play. And I think that's what Paul is tapping into.
1: And it's somehow like also the best possible material, uh, out, out there, like something that doesn't exist, uh, you know, among us, uh, uh, walking, walking the planet, um, for people that might be confused about where the direction where this is going, uh, I do want to point out that you have this great pedagogical practice in your book of, uh, uh, you know, after... The mini paragraphs where you explain Paul getting weird, you then kind of distill it down into bullets that are more easily digestible. And I could see those existing like uh, at the end of a lecture, perhaps, for, for students that are completely lost uh, as you go through this. So I, that's a, um, a practice that I might want to take away from this. And it exists in several places uh, toward the latter chapters of your book where Paul gets especially weird. Um, Matt, uh, when, I, when, I, when I interview uh, or have conversations with scholars like this, most questions come from the material that they raise uh, in their book and occasionally there's a, there's something that I just want to pick their brain on and that's what this next question uh, uh, qualifies as. Nothing in your book in particular raised this question but I'd just like to see what you as a Pauline scholar how you approach this. So um, for 1 Thessalonians uh, right? Uh, uh, most scholars believe is the first letter that Paul writes around uh, the year 50 of the common era. So it's his earliest surviving letter but it's also a um, uh, um, uh, the first excellent piece from any Jesus follower period, and uh, for interpreting Paul's convictions, First Thessalonians also means that we have at least one letter from Paul before he deals with a significant Judaizing problem in in one of his communities. So, um, do you sense that the Jewish Gentile question that Paul deals with most famously in Galatians and Romans um, is always a central matter for Paul? Like, is that like at the top of his mind? Is that like the th- the nut that he's trying to crack uh, with his mission to the Gentiles? Or does this become his problem, (laughs) his main problem as the years sort of wane on, the eschaton hasn't arrived, and he's basically forced to confront deviant practices in his communities, that is Gentiles taking on Jewish beliefs and practices, um practices more than beliefs i would say um and you know the possibility that there are all there are other uh jesus following missionaries who don't quite see things as paul does and he wants and these uh, uh, missionaries would want gentiles to take on these beliefs um, so, and, and I frame this question uh, by uh, means of J.C. Becker, who is a, one author that I read for my comps, and he deals with the, what is the coherence of Paul's message versus what is the contingency that kind of brings about the letters that uh, that he writes. And he, so for uh, for Becker, the uh, coherence is the apocalypticism uh, that is rampant in Second Temple Judaism, and the co- the contingency are the various, you know, uh, life together community problems that he has to deal with uh, when he writes his letters. So I'm not asking you to endorse Becker here or anything like that, but uh, I'm I'm just curious uh, how you think of Paul's central issue versus what uh, might have uh, um, spawned the different letters that uh, we, you know, we famously read over and over and over and, and try to dig from.
0: Yeah. Um, so when I, when I was writing my Paul and the Gentile Problem book that came out in 2016, uh, a friend, um, Ben White at Clemson, had read some part of, of uh, that, I guess, at some point. And I had made some claim about Abraham being absolutely central to Paul's gospel. And he pointed out, he's like, Matt, like, Paul wrote more than just Galatians and Romans. <laughs> <coughs> so, sorry, I'm getting over a, a cold here. Um <clears throat> And I, you know, it, it struck me like, oh, yeah, um, you know, you're, you get so invested in the text you're looking at, you forget. I haven't looked at all the other, or I'm not thinking about those other texts at this point. Abraham doesn't really come up anywhere else. Um, and it struck me that, yeah, there's like, there's something unique to Romans and Galatians, as much weight as we give them in our readings of Paul, especially around Paul and the law or Paul and Judaism. We have to remember that those are those are still as and as full as romans feels it's still very um um oh episodic yeah occasional thank you that's actually the word i was looking for this thing comes out of a moment in time in a particular set of of needs that paul feels or things exist it's not there in first thessalonians now there may be reasons about this if first thessalonians is paul's first letter i think it is um what, what's on people's minds? The end is coming any day now. So they're not thinking, let's go get circumcised, or how do we relate to Jews, or Israel, or any of that stuff. They're just like, great, right, it's coming. And then, oh, wait, it's not coming as quickly as possible. People are dying. And so I do think what we end up seeing in Paul's letters is um, not initially... Uh it's not an initial thing. And this is, I think, again, but something that happens with the with the new perspective and the Lutheran perspective. But I think Paul within Judaism people maybe do it too. And, and I think I've been guilty of this. We we forget that our questions aren't Paul's questions. And so um, or or his readers, initial readers' questions. And so I don't think the issue of um Gentiles and the law, Jewish law, are are all everywhere present in Paul's letters. I think it arose because you had people starting to push things within Pauline communities um, that Paul then found problematic. And maybe it was people within those communities. Um, maybe it was other, other you know, quote unquote, missionaries, um, Jesus missionaries who were coming through. But there is a contingency to these debates. And so, um, you know, I think Rebecca and I would probably agree uh, it's been some time. I read Becker for comps too. Uh, it's going back for some years it's now. A
1: popular uh, comp book.
0: Yeah, I think I think we'd both point back to Schweitzer, Albert Schweitzer, who's who who claimed that the justification by faith was a crater in Paul's thinking that rose out of this out of an occasion and in in controversy. But what was the core and center of Paul's thinking was was being in Christ, being in the Messiah, and I think there's a truth to that. Um, these debates about the Jewish law that's not what Paul's gospel is about. His gospel is about the Messiah's come, the Messiah's spirits out and about and invading people. You can get this, and it'll give you new moral power, and you'll get the resurrection, um, a blessed afterlife. And that's the core for Paul. And what happens is he finds, oh, wait a minute, there are competing claims going around that I think are threatening to my claims about being in Christ and what you get there. And so um, that's exactly right. I don't think, I I think even the debates about sort of Paul within Judaism debates, well, those are only contingent upon the controversies that were there. That wasn't what was even on Paul's mind. Mm -hmm. Um, So even talking about Paul within Judaism is is in in a way creates a new set of problems because that's not, Paul wasn't thinking about that to start.
1: At the same time, it would be an odd introduction to Paul that uh, um, went with First Thessalon- with the problems of First Thessalonians and talked about that in in great depth without uh, confronting what people usually think of as the Pauline debates as, as being, you know, what do we do with Jews and gen- uh, Jews uh, that are not accepting Jesus and and how uh, are they going to uh, eventually be res- resurrected as he kind of deals with toward the end of Romans. Um, but uh, this, was, this is a fascinating way to uh, think about Paul. But at the same time, I'm not sure how well it preaches. So my next question is about how pedagogically speaking, you'd like to see this book used by New Testament scholars and in their classrooms um, for those that have um, uh, theological commitments to uh, confront as well. This is a defamiliarized Paul, a Paul made weird, and you unpack all of his assumptions with the philosophy and science from 2,000 years ago, Uh, but um, we don't share most of Paul's assumptions today. So um, uh, how how do we turn this into a Paul that preaches? Um, So obviously, I think it's a great way to introduce someone who is foreign to people in our day and age to uh, sort of reject the necessity to make Paul think like us, uh, even if we do have to contend with faith versus works and so on and so forth. What is the ultimate value of presenting this Jewish Paul to an audience that would rather him be more Christian or kind of need him to be more Christian? And do you at all lament the staying power of the Christianized Paul of both Catholic and Protestant uh, um, uh, designs in popular imagination?
0: Yeah, (laughs) those are big questions. (laughs) Um, You know, I've so I think so there's one simple answer I can give, but I don't think it's enough. I think it's good. Um, it's, it's important. And that's we need to um I think this book is one effort amongst amongst a number to to show that the long tradition of Christian anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism supersessionism um is an inaccurate way to read Paul. And so, you know, I think. Uh, many Christians, especially Protestants and even more so evangelical Protestants, feel if Paul holds to something, I have to hold to that. Um, and if there's that sort of thinking going on and you think Paul's supersessionistic or anti-Jewish, you're going to just replicate that uh, in our modern day and age. And so at the very least, to to, to show that the very common anti-Jewish readings of Paul um, don't seem to match up with the sort of the best historical way of reading Paul. I think that matters. Um, if we can free him from that and free free our readings from having to assume there's something fundamentally wrong with Judaism that Paul's fixing or responding to, I think that's really important stuff, but I think there's gotta be more, um, there's gotta be more to it than that. And so, uh, you know, I do think, There are things within the Lutheran reading and in the New Perspective reading that are fundamentally right. Paul definitely doesn't think humans are somehow capable of of, uh, pulling up their bootstraps and earning their salvation. Salvation is a a divine gift, um, and it is located in the Messiah, uh, and humans don't have to earn God's favor. And so there's something really important about that there. It just, we don't have to require Judaism to preach the opposite of Paul Mm. on that front. Um, And same with the new perspective that Paul, you know, one of the things he's doing is he's bringing these non-Jews in to a fundamentally Jewish movement and having to reorient them around this new world. um, Or maybe not entirely new world, but this somewhat new world um, to them and claiming that they are full heirs as well. Now, I think what is so interesting about this way of reading Paul is I think Paul wants Jewish believers to keep the Jewish law still, Jewish believers in Jesus, and he doesn't want non-Jews to keep, well, most of the Jewish law, which he thinks isn't applicable to them. And so what his, his vision uh, is for a, a fair amount of diversity in uh, these churches, as we would call them. And so there's something there that I think should be a theological resource for Christians today to think about um, what it means to be uh, a diverse, um, multifaceted Christianity who doesn't have to conform to, you know, whether it's American or uh, European or Canadian um, forms of Christianity. So I'm sure there's more there, and I hope i hope people who have more theological acumen than i do can maybe find uh (laughs) find something there that would be my that would be my hope yeah
1: wonderful well matt this book has been out for a few months now which in kind of Geological time <laughs> or cosmic time is uh, a speck. It's not very. It's not very long. So I hope it is uh, taken up and interacted with uh, far and wide. Uh, I could see using it, um, you know, to kick off a, a course I teach on Paul, uh, and hope I get the chance to do that in the future. But um, uh, uh, yeah, I wish you uh, uh, success with this book and and your other work. And uh, I guess my last question for you would be, um, what are you working on next now that the the pandemic is over and you can access, well, over in kind of its, uh, you know, acute and widespread uh, phenomenon. But uh, now, that that, now that that's beyond us and you have access to books again, what are you working on next? Is it uh, something else related to Paul? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I
0: had, I had dreams about doing other things. I'm doing some small stuff, but um, I think I've been roped in contrary to every plan and expectation and promise I made to myself. Uh, I think I've been roped into writing a commentary on Galatians. Um, so as you said at the beginning of this, this podcast, uh, there's no shortage of books on Paul. There are no shortage of commentaries. No. And so I had promised never to write a commentary. Um, but someone pointed out to me as she, as she twisted my arm that there's no sort of Paul within Judaism commentary on Galatians. And so there's room for something there. So uh against at least what i think is my own wisdom i'm i'm going to be trying to write a commentary on galatians it's
1: better judgment and so on and so forth uh can you share with us what series it's going to be in or or is that too early to to say just yet
0: it's maybe a bit too early um yeah, we'll see.
1: It's something that I think we deal with also in, uh, you know, um, synoptic problem studies, where we don't uh, have many good examples of people dealing with Luke, for example, from a non-Q perspective, or Matthew from a non-Q perspective. So uh, it's nice to get it, but I know that it's tedious work, and we uh, we thank you for uh, taking on that mantle. But we also thank you for taking the time today to speak with us. This has been a great conversation, and um, I hope listeners uh, certainly enjoy it and your work on the Jewish Paul, and for uh, the time you took to be our guest today on the New Books Network.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks, man. Again, uh, Dr. Teason's book is uh, A Jewish Paul, The Messiah's Herald to the Gentiles. It's available now from uh, Baker Academic, wherever quality books are sold. I've been Rob Heaton, for uh, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for New Books in Biblical Studies. I'll be with you again on your next download, but in the meantime, never stop questioning. Thanks, bye-bye.